0: Next up is backstory listener David Taylor. Let's hear about his favorite show. Hi, this is David Taylor calling from Washington, D.C. Two moments that come to mind for me are from two episodes. One is episode 207 uh, about Charlottesville after the, uh, the riot, and that uh, the personal dimension of uh, all three hosts sharing that was really powerful. The other, I may be biased, but uh, episode 274, uh, about death on the assembly line and the combination of the industrial tragedies presented were just a surprise to me. Uh, and thank you all for for the tremendous view of history that you've given uh, through the years. I look forward to what comes next. Take care.
1: Well, Joanne, this one is from the period that I write about the most, and one of the reasons it's such a terrific segment, and Charlie does an amazing job. Is that it starts with terrific scholarship by our colleague Brian Simon, who wrote the book, The Hamlet Fire.
0: I think this piece also does something that Backstory does really well, and that is explore things that are unpleasant or uncomfortable or tragic and really go deep to find out what's there. Nathan starts off this segment from our show, Death on the Assembly Line.
1: In September 1991, a fire erupted inside a chicken processing plant in Hamlet, North Carolina. The flames and toxic smoke killed 25 people and injured dozens. Many of the employees tried to escape through the exits, but they were trapped because several of the doors were padlocked from the outside. Now, 28 years later, Hamlet residents and former employees of the plant are still grappling with the painful memory. Our producer, Charlie Sheldon Ormond, went to Hamlet and spoke with some of the people who were there the day of the fire. Here he is with the story. Annette Pierce
2: Zimmerman has lived in Hamlet her whole life.
3: Mm -hmm. All my life, 53 years.
2: Annette spends a lot of time working for her church. She's the church secretary. She runs a food pantry there.
3: And we've been feeding the men at the homeless shelter every fourth Wednesday for the past three
2: years. But it isn't always easy for Annette to stay on the go. She carries with her constant reminders of the tragedy that struck Hamlet nearly three decades ago.
3: I have been sick for the past 27, 28 years. My body has gone through numerous aches and pains and changes before the fire. I never had a headache since the fire. I don't think I can go a week. I haven't had a week where I didn't have a headache. The pain is a constant reminder of what we've been through.
2: Annette worked at the Imperial Food Products chicken processing plant for three years before a deadly fire erupted inside the facility. During her time there, she says she mostly worked in the packing department.
3: By the time it reached us, the chicken was already fried, frozen, and then Typical day, I'd go in at 7 or 8, depending on what orders we had. Go in the packing room, I would weigh chicken tenders. I enjoyed my job. I think I enjoyed the people more than the job. If you saw me, you would always see a, a lady named Brenda Kelly and Margaret Banks. No matter what uh, they call us, the three musketeers.
2: Even though she appreciated her community of co-workers, Annette says the conditions in the plant could be tough. Just for example, employees might find themselves working the fry line, where it was so hot that even in the middle of winter, you'd be stripped down to very little clothing. But no matter where you were in the plant, it was hard to avoid the smell permeating through the building.
3: The smell of raw chicken at times, until you got used to it, could be quite unbearable. And walking through the fryer area, that was the hottest part of the building. That area, it was just smells of burnt grease mostly. The roof was coming in on one end, so it wasn't a, a safe structure at all. But in areas like this, you, when jobs are hard to come by, you have to go to work in unsafe conditions just to feed your family. So the majority of us, we wanted to work. At least that was my reason for going there. I wanted a job. I wanted to support my children. on My own had two kids at the time. So I wanted to be able to show them that hard work paid off and we could have something of our own.
2: The ability, like Annette says, to have something for your own, like a house or a car, has looked different for people in Hamlet in the past. Before Imperial came to town in 1980, Hamlet was known for one thing, the railroad.
0: Hamlet had been the center of several major rail lines in the South, and It had developed around the railroad station, literally and symbolically. The center of the town was this quite beautiful Victorian train depot. And radiating out from that, in a
2: sense, were all the things that happened from the railroad. This is historian Bryant Simon. A few years ago, he published a book called The Hamlet Fire. Simon says Hamlet's success as a railroad town gave its residents a good deal of economic freedom.
0: And Hamlet, um, officials even bragged that they were the leading center of backyard swimming pools in the South. And and, and the brag was that the railroad had allowed working class men to move into the middle class. And what begins to happen in the late 1950s and kind of slowly into the 1970s is the railroad industry collapses.
2: Meanwhile, as the railroad industry disappeared in Hamlet, up in Pennsylvania, two men— Emmett Rowe and his son, Brad, were running a chicken processing plant. But things weren't going great. Their plant was far from their chicken supplier, and they were frustrated by Pennsylvania's labor regulations.
0: And so they're facing their own kind of crisis of profitability, and they begin to look to move. And when they begin to look to move, um, the owner of the company sees an ad for a shuttered ice cream plant in Hamlet, North Carolina, and surely he does what anybody in his position would do. He did a profile of the place. And the things that mattered to him were rates of unemployment, kind of wage rates, really vulnerability. And what he found was maybe the perfect place for a business, a place in which jobs had collapsed, in which primary industries had fallen apart, and which, in which there was a surplus of labor. And so... What's important about this system, this system of cheap that's in place there, is the government. And its lack of involvement is a crucial dynamic here. And and in fact, something that the state of North Carolina advertises to potential investors, I mean, slyly, they essentially say, look, you can come here and run
2: your plant the way you want to. So once in Hamlet, the Rose were able to operate the Imperial plant with little to no oversight. Simon says Imperial wasn't the only business that was enticed by this. By 1990, North Carolina was the most industrial state per capita in the country.
0: And so it has 180,000 workplaces in 1990. And it has somewhere in the neighborhood of between 35 and 45 factory plant inspectors. So if you break that down, if they did their job and they inspected one factory a day, Every day, five days a week, it would have taken them somewhere between 67 and 72 years to inspect every plant in the state.
2: That meant the Rows could violate almost any safety rule and never get caught. So equipment didn't have to be up to code, and doors could stay padlocked from the outside.
0: The owners, Brad and Emmett Rowe, locked the factory doors to stop their employees from stealing chickens. That wasn't the true story, but it, but it has importance to it. The real story is, is that the back of the plant where the main door was locked was a place that workers would go out to throw boxes away and they would go out to maybe get a smoke. But what was happening is because there was so much traffic out that back door, flies were coming into the factory. And the flies immediately went to the meat. And the officials from the USDA were hounding the rows in the spring and summer of 1991 about these flies. And one of the maintenance men for the Rose suggested, well, why don't we just lock the door, then no one can go out and the flies can't come in. And the USDA said, that's fine.
3: There was no proof that anyone was stealing chicken, but that was the allegation. Was it worth lives lost to lock those doors over the allegation of some stolen chicken?
2: On September 3rd, 1991, Annette came into work early. Along with the rest of the workers, she had just enjoyed a day off from Labor Day. And she says, like always, she started work that day with her two good friends, Brenda and Margaret.
3: We'd always clunk in together. And we went in early and we played around that morning. We pulled each other's smocks and had these plastic aprons to wear. We kept tearing our aprons, just playing and talking about, You know, our Labor Day weekend, and we usually always work together. And we got separated that morning. By 8.30, we heard women screaming, and there's this big, thick partition that separated the frying room from the thigh room. So when I opened it, all you saw was this big black smoke and women running, and uh, somebody yelled, fire. And then the lights started flickering so we knew that it was something serious then and it was too black, you couldn't see. And then the power went out and I ended up falling. That's when I got stepped on. I don't know how long I was on the floor, but I remember making it to the area where the freezer was, where the door that we tried to get out of. And 20, maybe 25 of us ended up in that little area pressed up against the door, and a guy, Bernard Campbell, he squeezed through it. Somebody tore the siding, and he got through the hole to go get somebody with a key. Uh, he heard his back that particular day, um, but he got out and got the key. I passed out before they opened the door. I remember seeing the door come open because I saw the sun light, and I remember them telling us to back up because they had to push the door in, But we were pressed up against the door. But by the time they got it open, uh, the first two ladies in the front had died. As Miss Peggy Anderson was one of those ladies that had died at the front. Um, They said she was smoking elation and she had a heart attack from being crushed against you know all the people pressing against her. And I almost ended up in the freezer with couple of other people, because that's what they said. Go in the freezer, close the door, and you could be able to breathe.
0: A group of workers get to that loading dock, and they realize the doors were locked, and so they scurry into a cooler, thinking that the cooler will protect them from the flames, not knowing that um, what will kill them was carbon monoxide. What they also didn't know, and a kind of brutal irony, was that that was one of the doors that actually didn't close right. It had not been fixed, so it it didn't close tight. So they basically were in this chamber as carbon monoxide seeped into it, and 12 people died in there.
3: I came to again. I was outside on the ground beside uh, Miss Cleo Reddick, and they were giving me oxygen. I gave uh, her my oxygen mask and got up. And... I woke up again, I was in the rescue squad. I don't know how much time had passed between the beginning of the fire and the time I got to the hospital, I don't know.
2: The fire was caused by a hydraulic line that powered a conveyor belt. This belt took battered chicken tenders up a ramp and dumped them into a fryer. But the hydraulic line kept causing problems.
0: The um, maintenance crew got there early that morning and they hooked up a new hydraulic line with the wrong parts. They didn't have the right parts because the owner of the plant, Brad Rowe, refused to pay for the right parts.
2: So when the line turned on, a disconnected hose spewed flammable hydraulic fluid. This ignited the flames from the fryer and caused an explosion that cut the factory in half. Twenty-five people died from the flames and toxic smoke that consumed the plant. After the fire, Imperial went bankrupt. Emmett Rowe, his son Brad, and plant manager James Hare were indicted on 25 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Emmett Rowe pled guilty for all of them and got an 18-year prison sentence. He only served four and a half. Annette has battled health problems ever since. She's had multiple surgeries for her neck, knee, and back. She's been diagnosed with asthma and lung disease from smoke inhalation. She says many of the workers had to go through a long process to receive compensation for their injuries, and some of them even had to pay a portion of that back. In addition to her health, Annette has also dealt with the haunting memory of the fire, a trauma she spent decades coping with.
3: It's much better now than it had been. We had years of therapy, uh, but it's been... My faith and being active in church that has helped more than anything. Uh, if I didn't have church, if I didn't have God. I, I, I know I wouldn't be here. I've had those suicidal moments in regards to that. I was felt guilty for years because Brenda and Margaret both died. I felt guilty because we were the three musketeers. What happened to one happened to all three of us. You know, all for one, one for all and I wasn't there. I wasn't with them when um, when they died. I don't know yet. Nobody would ever tell me where, where they were found at, but I, I find comfort in, in believing that whichever area they died in, they were together.
2: Annette says for years, she couldn't drive past the burned down building. And when she did, she'd often experience anxiety attacks or sit in her car in a trance mesmerized by the discarded remains. For 10 years, the imperial plant stayed up in Hamlet as a scar of the tragedy.
3: I think it was a a lack of concern for people and more of a concern for profit. they could have got more profit out of it, I think they would have.
0: The plant was in the black part of town, and that man, if you went to school, you had to pass the plant. If you went to the Piggly Wiggly, the only supermarket in town, you had to pass the plant. If you went to some churches, you had to pass the plant. If you wanted to go to Main Street, you had to pass the plant. And it was a form of terror, essentially. And the town wouldn't take it down because it wouldn't spend the money to do so. Why? They were hoping that another industrial concern would locate there. Because how could the town function without the revenues generated by taxes from that plant.
2: The building stayed hollowed and dilapidated until former workers and other community members petitioned city officials to tear it down. Today, a memorial is in place at the old site, which sits right around the corner from Annette's church.
3: Yes, it's walking distance. Walking in, or or it's not even a minute drive. Yeah, we can actually go there if you like. This uh, the little path there, that is actually the spot that led to the loading dock where the truck was parked at and the door was locked. This here would have been the break room area.
2: At the Memorial Park, I also spoke with Willie Baldwin. He was a supervisor at Imperial. We talked about what it took to tear down the building and how the community and politicians outside of Hamlet had to pressure the city.
3: It was a hard-fought battle. It was sad that we had to get outside politicians to come in and to help us get this torn down because it was eyesore. And then on top of that, you know, it was infested with all type of diseases, you know, and I had kids walking through here. You know, we don't see our kids all the time when they leave the house, because some of them could have came up here and got messed up, and we never knew nothing about it.
2: Both Annette and Willie say city officials have always been reluctant to address the tragedy. Even today, they're still waiting on an official dedication for the memorial from the city.
3: It's never going to (laughs) happen. It ain't going to happen until we start pushing it. But we shouldn't have to push for that. Whenever the building was torn down and they said they'd do a memorial park, they said we would officially dedicate it when the trees grew. Trees are grown. Then they said when the trees bloom. They have bloomed a few times. Yeah. But we still have no no official dedication.
2: A little bit down the road from the old imperial site lies another memorial, one the workers put up shortly after the fire. It includes a stone monument with the names of those who died, and a poem written by Annette.
3: Silver and gold have we none, just love overflowing for everyone. Once you were here, now you are gone, with tears, joy, and sorrow, your loving memory lingers on.
2: Bryant-Simon says there are eerie similarities between the Hamlet Fire and the notorious Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in New York City 80 years prior. That fire killed close to 150 people. And like Hamlet, many of the workers couldn't escape because the doors to the stairs and exits were locked. The Triangle Fire brought national attention to dangerous sweatshop conditions, which led to stricter labor laws and more federal regulations. And Simon says that's where Triangle and Imperial start to look different.
0: Triangle created a kind of fundamental rethinking of the role of government. And in the wake of Hamlet, that didn't happen. And again, I think that that's the way in which this system of cheap creates a logic that is hard to get out of. What's the answer to cheap? It's not more government. It's more industry that will create more jobs. And and that essentially was the state of North Carolina's response. And if anything, it's become increasingly the response of other states around the country as, as we have this sort of fiction of state lines right in this country that forces competition for dwindling um, opportunities. And, and since we've redefined the function of government not into protecting people, but into being some sort of engine for job creation, we just don't care about what the jobs are, or what the costs are in the back end. And there's nobody really... I don't know who's out there who's really challenging that kind of broader logic.
3: I want to know if it was worth it. That would be my question to them. If the 25 lives lost that day and those that have died from their injuries since then, what was it worth it? Was it worth the profit that they made from the business that they ran and, and to run it the way they did? And if they could do something different, would they have? Would that have actually changed them? Was it worth locking the doors?
1: That was producer Charlie Sheldon Ormond with the story. Special thanks to Annette Pierce Zimmerman, Willie Baldwin, and Bryant Simon. Simon's book is The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government and cheap lives.